you know, you were doing all of this exercise at home, but because you weren't properly nourishing yourself, you're still weak because your body uses muscle for energy before it uses fat stores. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Thank you for joining us on the Seasoned Arty Podcast. I want to let you know that today we get to have a conversation with Dr. Delaney Westlink, who is a physical therapist and certified eating disorder specialist working at the highest level of care for eating disorders and severe malnutrition. This patient population is fragile. There are things she's learned along the way as one of the first eating disorder specialists in her discipline of physical therapy, and she shares that with us today. The other thing that's striking to me in this moment is what she said she wished she would have known in the field of eating disorders is not to be so hard on yourself. Sitting with our clients or patients is often more valuable than, okay, great, let's work on your strength. And that can be so hard for us professionals to not try to check all the boxes and get things done, but to just be in the room with our clients and patients and just be. One phrase that stands out to me Dr. Westlink saying, I can't even imagine how difficult it would be to live in a brain that doesn't give permission to rest. And I don't expect all physical therapists to give their email address to patients openly to contact them after they're discharged. But one thing too that she said is that it's important to pass off our patients' clients to the best possible providers in their outpatient or whatever setting they're going to be in. She said residential centers are doing the best they can. So this podcast allows us, in the words of Maya Angelou, when we know better, we can do better. Now you know. And so to get a little woo-woo with you, Literally, if you're listening in real time, one year ago, I had a sudden medical complication and was in the ICU for 20 nights. um, As pictures are coming up and reminding me of all the machines and how touch and go my life was, I'm convinced even more that I have work to do to share the message of helping our clients and patients in this field and helping professionals feel comfortable and confident in helping those patients at different levels of care. Finally, don't forget about the freebies. The information is in the show notes, supervision freebies. The next one we have is on growth charts, which is going to be so great. We have Therapists, dietitians, and medical providers all joining in for a quick design for busy professionals on topics that are important to you live sessions once a month. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Seasoned Hardy Podcast, Delaney. Yay, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited. We are excited to chat with you. We haven't 
had a lot of discussions with physical therapists yet. So we're excited to learn from you. But just to ease into things, we've got some icebreakers for you. So I was looking at your bio on acute, and I think I know the answer to this first one already, but mountains or beach? Oh, mountains. Yeah, for sure. I live in Colorado, so not a lot of beaches around here either. Right. Makes sense. And breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. I could eat breakfast for any meal of the day, really. I agree. You, you kind yeah. of a savory breakfast person or sweet or combo? More sweet, honestly. I'm a big oatmeal girl. I love pancakes and waffles. My husband and I make pancakes and waffles for dinner a lot. Mm, yeah. yeah. And the last one is audiobook or paper book? Paper book. Yeah. I like both. I've been really into audiobooks lately, but I actually just joined a book club and it's been really fun, like trying to get back into reading a little bit more and finding kind of my passion for that again. But like I kind of lost it when I was in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> you read so much and I'm like, I don't want to read for enjoyment anymore. So yeah, yeah. But I really found my passion for reading again lately. It's been fun. Well, speaking of grad school, how I'm going to take you back to your board exam for physical therapy. Physical therapists have to be doctoral levels now. And so you had to have a some kind of an exam, right? What yep. was that? Do, what do you remember about that day? Oh, man. I was very stressed out. <laughs> I remember because I took my board's exam when I was still doing my last clinical rotation. If I, if I could go back and do it again, I would tell young Delaney to not do that. But it was nice because I had graduated with my, like I had already passed my boards by the time I graduated from my program. So it was nice because then I was able to look for jobs and I was already licensed. I just remember being really uncertain and scared. But then as soon as I sat down and started taking the exam, I had really prepared myself for it. And my school had also prepared me for it. So I just remember it being a very long day. Was and it I got on a computer? I, yeah, on a computer. Yeah. And so sitting for a really long period of time, you got like one break. So it was rough, but fast. Mm. Everything's fine. I walked out of the room. I think we all, well, I know after I take big exams, I always walk out of the room and I'm like, I definitely failed. Like, <laughs> I absolutely failed. I didn't know any of the questions. Yeah. So there's definitely some of that imposter syndrome. That For sure. Seems like forever ago that that was. For sure. Then, and that's way behind you now. So yeah. you are, how did you get into physical therapy and how did you get into eating disorders? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting path, I think. So I wanted to be a personal or excuse me, an athletic trainer for like when I went into undergrad, that was kind of what I was set on doing because I had done an athletic training program in my high school. So I went to to college and I started doing that because the college that I went to, I went to University of Montana in Missoula. So they had like a two, four program. So you could do two years of undergrad and then four years of the athletic training program and then graduate in six years, which I thought was kind of cool. But then one of my really close family friends actually suffered from a pretty bad stroke when I was in college. So when I came home that summer, I spent a lot of time with her just because we were really close to them. And I went to her physical therapy appointments with her just because we were kind of, I was kind of thinking, okay, if I'm interested in athletic training, this might be really interesting too. Just because before then I really wasn't super familiar with physical therapy. I played soccer my whole life, but luckily I didn't get any major injuries. So I never really had to 
do any physical therapy. So I went to the physical therapy sessions with her and I got to know her physical therapist really well. And I just like fell in love with it. I kind of came to realize that I liked the rehabilitation of injuries more than I liked kind of like the acute injury that you deal with in athletic training. And I really like in physical therapy, the connection that you can make with patients. I've always really liked like meeting people and getting to know about them and asking questions about themselves. So I loved that, like you met this person when they're at their most vulnerable state, most of the time and you get to build that rapport with them and just work with them for a long period of time and watch them get stronger and watch them achieve their goals. So then when I went back to college the following fall, I changed my major. I got my degree in exercise science and then applied for physical therapy school. So And then eating disorders specifically, I kind of fell into it, honestly. I went to physical therapy school at the University of Colorado Denver, the Anschutz Medical Campus in Denver. So obviously I came to school here and then stayed here. And we actually had a presentation in one of my classes by Michelle Logging. She was kind of like spearheaded, you know, eating disorder, physical therapy and eating disorders in a big way. And I just remember sitting there and I was thinking, this is so cool. And this is not something I've ever heard of before but I probably will never work in that setting, but it's something to make a mental note of, you know? And I went up and talked to her after the presentation and I was just like, this is so great. Like, thank you for coming. So then I graduated from physical therapy school in December of 2018. And then I was, you know, looking for jobs. I actually started in home health pediatrics, which I really loved working with kids, but I realized pretty quickly that home health was maybe not for me just as a new grad. You're kind of like out there on your own. And I just didn't feel like I had a lot of guidance and I wasn't feeling super passionate about what I was doing. So I continued that for about five months while I was still looking for other jobs. And then I saw this job at Acute that was posted for a physical therapist. And I thought, you know, I'll apply to it, but I probably won't get it because I'm a new grad and I don't have any experience in eating disorders and whatever. I'll try. And who does Um, at that point? Exactly. And, you know, so I applied and I just ended up really hitting it off with other physical therapists that worked here. I think that that honestly was like the deciding factor is that her and I got along really well. And she was like, you have a great personality for this setting and anything else I can teach you. Right. So then I've been working here ever since. So I've been working here. It'll be four years in May, which is crazy. It goes by so fast. And I... Every day I'm so thankful for what I do. I feel really fortunate that I just kind of fell into this job and that I love it. I know that's not always the case for everyone. They have like different journeys, but yeah. Yeah. So cool. So you played soccer, Mm kind of got the athletic training piece. And then this is what this podcast really is about is bringing in people who are in their early experiences and um, whether you're in your internship or whether you're working with a friend who has had a stroke and you're learning about their long-term physical therapy, it's it's finding our niche Mm -hmm. and how do we learn what we learn? So you listen to Dr. Logging, by the way, I will link to her episode in your, or to her show in the show notes, because she taught me so much too. And then, so how did, you know, how did you learn what you learned? And one of the things you said is, we'll teach you what you need to know. So what do you think helped you learn what you needed to learn to be a physical therapist in what I call the ICU for eating disorders? Yeah, I think when I first started here, I I was definitely scared and intimidated just because the patient population we work with is very fragile. 
And like you said, I was coming in and I was essentially a new grad. So I was not only learning the field of eating disorders, but I was learning kind of the, the type of clinician I wanted to be, right? I was still building up a lot of my skills in general. So I had a mentor. Michelle was a big help. I, we met with her quite a bit since I essentially took her spot when she left to build her outpatient clinic. That's when I started working here. So she was a lot of help. We had like meetings with her and things like that. And there were presentations that she had created that were like on my computer still that I spent time looking over. And then Nicole Sabatka, she was the physical therapist that worked here when I first started. So she was a big help for me. She was really my mentor. And now she does outpatients. I don't think she does some work with eating disorders, but she mostly does pelvic floor in Utah. So I think it was honestly just trial by fire, to be honest. Like, I think it was a lot of just the environment that I was in is very supportive. Like at Acute, we're so lucky because we have so many people that I've been working in this field for a while. I had the opportunity to shadow everyone on the team. So I shadowed like a dietitian, a social worker, a psychologist, psychiatrist, medical doctor, everybody, and just asked a bunch of questions. I think I just tried to like remain curious and allowed myself to be humbled. And if I didn't know things, then I was okay with saying, you know, I'm not sure about that, but let me ask. I think just since physical therapy in this setting is so new, there's still a lot that we don't know and just kind of trying things out and seeing how they go. But I think at the end of the day, it's really not that different. Like as you were really just treating the impairments as a physical therapist, right? So someone comes in and they have a lot of weakness. Well, then you're working on strengthening. Someone comes in and they can't get out of bed independently. Okay, well, then you're working on bed mobility. So I think it's a lot of just the things that I learned in physical therapy school. But one thing that's different is just the patient population. You have to be careful about what you say, making sure you're always being respectful. I used to say things like, oh, you're looking good but I learned that that can be really harmful when you're working with this patient population. So I think honestly, just really a lot of humbling and just trial by fire and learning a lot from the people around me. And then doing my SED certification, I learned a lot as well. Like taking the core courses, I learned quite a bit. I really try to be good about each week. I'll go on to like the journal of eating disorders or some kind of eating disorder journal and read an article, just trying to keep up to date. So I think it's just a whole host of things, but I think just not being afraid to jump into it and knowing that you're not going to be an expert at first and that's okay. Being really mindful about the people you surround yourself with and being okay with having a mentor and not trying to like go it alone, you know? Which I think is helpful for a lot of newer professionals listening because I mean, you know, we go through so much school and it's like, well, I should know everything by now, right? Like, I should be able to jump into this and like just roll with it. But it does take a lot of humbling, especially in the eating disorder population, because just like you said, there's still so much that we don't know. And we talk about this all the time too, that at an inpatient setting, obviously there are pros and cons to inpatient versus outpatient. Some people like this, some people like that, but it is so nice that you can just like go see the dietitian or go see the therapist, see the physician and just see what everyone is doing. But I am curious, what does a typical day look like for you in conversations you're having with this population? Yeah. 
So I am really lucky because I get to schedule kind of my own day. So I come in and then we see patients for usually about 30 minute time slots. And I really like working in this setting because it's very different patient to patient. I've always been the kind of person where I tend to get bored easily. I just need, that's why I became a physical therapist in the first place. I really like that. I can like be on my feet. I can be moving around. I'm talking. It's dynamic. So it really depends on kind of the caseload that I'm carrying, depending on what my day looks like. We see patients anywhere from like two times a week if they're more independent, up to five times a week if they're less independent. If they come in and we're working on just getting them out of bed or some people come in and they're so weak they can't even tolerate like sitting up for more than a couple minutes. So we're working on like sitting and tolerance and endurance. But it just so like, for example, today I am seeing patients and I worked on just general strengthening with people. We did stairs. We use a lot of the same modalities that you would in an outpatient setting, like a TheraBand, weights, dumbbells, things like that. But then I saw another patient directly after that where we're working on just building up her endurance. So we just worked on walking today. We did ambulation in the hallway and then we set up kind of an obstacle course to work on her balance. So it's kind of like nice because I can use both skills. I can use my outpatient skills a little bit, and then I use my inpatient skills, which is what I always tell people when they say, well, what do you even do in that setting, (laughs) you know? And I say, it's not really that different than what any other physical therapist is doing. You just have to be a lot more mindful about some of the other comorbidities that come along with treating people with eating disorders than you do in maybe an outpatient setting. But yeah, it's fun because my everyday is different depending on kind of which patient I'm seeing and what the patient population on the unit is like. Yeah, totally. And it's so interesting when people say, what do you do all day? It's, it's <laughs> I remember somebody saying, aren't you going to get tired of eating disorders work? And it's like every, like you said, Delaney, every patient is different. So mm-hmm. it keeps you hopping. When we first got on, you were talking about the fragile nature of, of these individuals. So, and, and it's not just eating disorders. You it's acute as a center for malnutrition as well. So yeah. it shows up in the weakness in the bone density and those kinds of things. So you, the fragile nature, those are the things that you have to keep into account and how you speak to people. Like Mm -hmm. you're looking good. Well, gosh, that can be interpreted in so many hundreds of ways that can be problematic. So tell us a little bit about bone density, the fragile nature of, of the clients, the patients that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually recently read a study that said that over 90% of individuals with eating disorders have osteoporosis, which is crazy to me. I think a lot of it depends on the chronicity of the illness. So most of the time, if we have somebody who comes in and they're young, maybe they've only had their eating disorder or have been malnourished for less than a year, then they probably, they might come in and they have a lot of weakness because they're in this new body where they've lost a lot of weight, but we don't have to worry as much about their bone health because they haven't had their illness for as long. But if we have folks who come in and maybe they are 25 and they've had their eating disorder since they were 12, you can pretty much guarantee that they're going to have decreased bone mineral density, whether it be osteoporosis or just osteopenia. And a lot of our patients are really afraid to take medications. They don't want anything extra in their body. So oftentimes that leads into them being afraid of taking medication that will help with their bone mineral density. 
So I always provide a lot of education to people, especially at this level of care. I just assume everyone has decreased bone mineral density. It's better to assume than not. So I provide a lot of education about tasks that you would think are really simple, like getting in and out of bed. We always teach people to do a log roll technique. So they're rolling over to their side and then pushing themselves up to sitting. Provide a lot of education about different positions for their body. So I actually read an article a while ago about yoga because you'll see in like eating disorder treatment, yoga is everywhere, right? But yoga can be really detrimental on the body if you don't aren't careful about what positions you're having people go into, or if you're having people go to like the full extension of a pose that maybe doesn't feel good for their body. So in that article, it talked about how uh, spinal flexion, so like extreme spinal flexion going forward, and then extreme spinal extension going backward are two of the biggest motions that can cause compression fractures in Ooh. people with osteopenia and osteoporosis. We're going to take a quick break to recognize the sponsor of this episode and some coming up. I'm always surprised when people don't know about acute centers for eating disorders and severe malnutrition. It is that resource that truly is life-changing. Acute Center for Eating Disorders and Severe Malnutrition is your partner in assessment, referral, and treatment for patients at risk for refeeding syndrome, something that we're so we, I say we as dietitians, are so anxious about and medical providers in the outpatient setting, as well as those experiencing other dangerous medical complications of malnutrition, of purging, and of excessive exercise. ACUTE is the only dedicated inpatient medical stabilization program in the country with resources, environment, and experience to treat the most medically severe cases of eating disorders. This life-saving care is covered by medical insurance, which which preserves that valuable behavioral health benefit for our patients as they continue the recovery process. When patients are medically stable, they discharge to the appropriate next level of care, typically their established eating disorder care team or referring IP res program. All care at ACUTE is overseen by Dr. Phil Mailer, who his episode will drop next week. His second episode, the world's leading expert in the medical treatment of eating disorders. Expertise and experience matter when seeking medical care for severe eating disorders. You deserve unmatched understanding. Dr. Mailer and the ACUTE team bring to each and every case. So you think about in a yoga class, if you do like a forward fold even, but you don't have the muscular stability around your spine or the bone stability to protect that, then it can really lead to a lot of injury. So I talk to people a lot about that, getting up and down off of the floor. I always practice that with my patients because it's something that tends to be really common, commonly difficult. People will say, you know, I got down on the ground to pick something up and I couldn't get back up. So I talk a lot about avoiding those motions and using kind of like a chair or something else to stand up if they need to. You can actually really associate this population with a geriatric population. I use a lot of the same kind of interventions as I would in working with people who are a lot older just because they have really the similar frames and similar bone density to that of the geriatric population. So yeah, I just provide a lot of education because we also know that a lot of people with really severe eating disorders unfortunately don't always fully recover, or if they do, they aren't able to stay at a period of weight restoration for long enough for their bones to heal themselves. So they're probably going to be living with poor bone health for most of their lives can get better, but it's probably not going to get 
all the way better, depending on how severe. So I just talk a lot about it and say, you know, these are things that I want you to think about even after you leave the queue, like on your day-to-day life, just because if you get a compression fracture, there's really nothing we can do about that. It's just kind of chronic pain. Um, And often people will lose a lot of height from it. They'll have this really kyphotic posture where they're really rounded. So if we can do anything to kind of intervene on that early and teach them how to prevent that, I think that that's super, super important, not just for physical therapists, but for anyone working in this population. For sure. You know, with the osteoporosis bone density issues, that's one thing that we've learned is, is maybe the one thing that we can't improve. I know. Yeah. Uh, The rest of it, nutrition, focus, things like that, we can't improve. So I'm wondering how you help people. You you talked a little bit about over-exercise or people who have exercise addiction. How do you help them stay calm? I mean, yoga is the (laughs) evidence-based movement activity type for those with uh, restricting anorexia. But way, the way you described it, like it'd be easy to overexercise if your bones aren't in good shape. Yeah. Yeah. It's super difficult to treat people who have compulsive exercise. I am definitely not an expert, but it's something that I'm really passionate about just because we see people very often at acute that come in and they are really struggling with overexercise. They're pacing all day. They're exercising for three to four hours at a time. And they don't, sometimes they see a problem with it. Sometimes they say, you know, I know this isn't realistic. It's just, I'm so anxious and I don't have anything else that I can do to cope or my mind is so busy that I have to stay moving in order to quiet it down. So they're just feeling really helpless about it. That's one scenario. Another scenario is someone comes in and they think I can continue exercising for three to four hours at a time and I don't have to nourish myself and it's fine, you know, and both are difficult, although different. I just like to provide a lot of empathy to these patients because first of all, I can't even imagine how hard it would be to live in a brain where it's constantly telling you to move and not allowing yourself permission to rest. So I just provide a lot of education to people about, okay, now you're in the hospital. It's your time to allow yourself permission to rest. I provide a lot of objective evidence. So when people first get here, we do like some different outcome measures at acute just to look at people's strength and their balance. It helps give me an idea of their baseline. We do them again before discharge so that we can track their improvements over time. And then we also do it just to work closely with nursing staff to provide kind of education about how much assistance a person needs to make sure they're not at risk of falls or anything like that. So I use that kind of as objective data because everyone comes into acute and their outcome measures are less than what they should be for their age. Like their grip strength is significantly impaired. Their legs are a lot weaker. So I just say, you know, you were doing all of this exercise at home, but because you weren't properly nourishing yourself, you're still weak because your body uses muscle for energy before it uses fat stores. And so essentially what you're doing, if you're working out, you're creating these micro tears in your muscle, but you don't have any extra nutritional reserves to rebuild that. So you're just making yourself weaker. And I think if I provide a lot of objective data about that, I'll also print out research articles that kind of talk about the changes that happen in musculoskeletal systems and in the muscles when people are malnourished and provide those handouts to people. Sometimes that helps, especially for the ones that are a little bit more resistant. 
But I think it's a bigger issue than just at acute, right? Because what often happens is I'm so grateful that we have physical and occupational therapy here because we can kind of intercept and give them some other more gentle things to do like yoga and stretches and they're allowed to walk around the unit. It's very like protocol driven here. But then I find that what happens is when they go to residential treatment, they don't have anyone really giving them that education, they're often just told, oh, well, you can't move. You have to work up these level systems in order to be able to move. And then when they can move, it's like just yoga. And I know that residential treatment centers are just doing the best that they can. However, I think that there's like a lapse in that education and that help. So they go to residential and then maybe they hopefully go on to PHP and then all of a sudden they're home and outpatient. And for the longest time in treatment, they've been told, don't move, don't move, don't move. But now they're home. They're in this weight-restored body that they're probably super uncomfortable in. No one has told them how to appropriately move their body or incorporate exercise into their routine again. So then they oftentimes just end up falling back into this compulsive exercise routine, right? So I think when I talk about compulsive exercise, it's something I'm super passionate about because I try to do a lot of education and intervention here, but I think it's something that they need to continue on with. So if I have someone who is really struggling with compulsive exercise, I'll actually encourage them to like, hey, when you're home in your outpatient team, this is my email address. I want you to email me if you're struggling. And I want you to really think about following up with a physical therapist or a personal trainer or someone at home that can monitor your movements and like help you build that in again. Because the message I don't want to send is that you can never exercise again, right? Like I think it's really important for people who struggle with compulsive movement to take a break from that compulsive movement, give their body kind of time to like reassess and readjust and weight restore and nourish themselves. But I think it's really, again, not helpful to be like, oh, you have a hard time with exercise. You can never exercise again, you know? So we'll use exercise assessments at acute as well. We use the compulsive exercise test and the exercise dependence scale, um, which I really like just kind of broken up into subscales and it kind of gets down to the why behind why people are moving. Like, is it a weight control thing? Is it a rigidity thing? Maybe it's true compulsion, anything like that. But I mean, to be honest, when I take those myself, I, I score highly on them. You know, like I think people who are active can have areas of compulsivity to their movement. I think it's just about having a balance and also being able to like nourish your body properly to keep up with the amount of activity that you're doing. So yeah, I love talking about that. I could talk about it all day. I'm super passionate about it, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and we know that exercise is I, like I, as an eating disorder community, I think we're getting to the place where we can understand exercise is helpful in recovery and it's yeah. helpful for bringing hunger and fullness cues back. So I do feel like we're slowly moving to a place where it's happening in like residential centers now, but even just as you were explaining all of that, what kept popping up into my mind in the outpatient setting, it's can be really difficult to get people to care about their bone density. You know, yeah. so if it's something on the outside, like if they start to notice the difference in their hair or their skin or something like that, like maybe they'll start to care a little bit more about nourishing themselves. But when, as a dietitian, when I try to tell them, you know, this is the damage you're doing on the inside, it doesn't really hit home. You know, they're not in a position where they care about that. So yeah. just what I was picking up from what you were saying is consistency with 
telling them everything that's going on and empathy is what is giving you a lot of success. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, to add on what you're saying, I think it's really hard because in this patient population, you can't change things for them until they're ready to make that change. You know what I mean? Like, which even is so when it comes, hard. yeah, it is. Cause you like see so much hope for them, but if they're not ready to make that change or if they aren't ready to think about their bone health, then unfortunately they're probably not going to be until they have a compression fracture. We even have people sometimes at acute that have like idiopathic fractures where they just get a fracture. We have people that are really young, like as young as in their thirties that will fall and break their hip. Like, so I think sometimes just some reality checking of like, you have a chance to intercept on this now. If you don't, it could be really detrimental for you in the future. Yeah but I think that is really hard. We, st- I struggle with that a lot too. Like you can provide them all the resources and education and, you know, help and hope that you want, but unless they're willing to start making that change for themselves, it's like, can't force it on them. So what do you do? You mentioned that people might pace the floor. Mm-hmm. What do you do to help them calm and rest? Yeah. Super hard, I will say, but we have a couple things that we've done in the past that have been helpful. We really collaborate with our occupational therapy colleagues about doing like mindfulness with them, breathing, a lot of things like that. We'll give them yoga programs. We have rocking chairs on the unit that we'll give to people, which has been really helpful. We have like a stability ball that we'll use sometimes that I'll give to people just to bounce on, like finding other things to kind of soothe themselves. Sometimes we'll even set up like a behavioral plan with them of like, hey, you know, you can earn laps around the unit if you don't pace or let's talk about how much you think you can pace and then we need to stop so that they're not pacing all day. Just knowing that it's probably not realistic for someone to completely stop pacing if they've been pacing all day at home. Like they're already in the setting where they're challenging so many different things and they don't have any of their coping mechanisms. So I think expecting them to stop completely is not realistic, but just kind of like meeting. I'll always have a session with them where I just sit down and talk with them and say, hey, you're going to be here for a really long time. If you keep pacing all day, it's not really good for your recovery. You're going to have to be on a really high meal plan if you're moving all the time because you're already in a hypermetabolic state. So let's figure out some other things that you can do, right? Mm. Making like a list of coping strategies can be really helpful. And some people are more successful than others, but I will say in the people we've had on the unit that have been really compulsive exercisers, if we can set up some kind of a behavioral plan where they have things they can earn. So it feels like they're like earning privileges rather than like taking things away for sure um, it can feel really helpful oh yeah I mean one thing that you said too about this the body uses muscle before fat for energy and so do you have any visuals or handouts that you give to to help hone this in for your patients what's happening because Abby's question was so spot on sent her little chat on the side saying, boom, this is why, like, how do you help them care? Because bone density is invisible. You don't know until something is broken or fractured or whatever. So how do you help them? But like, are there ways that you help people show, show them the science of what's happening in their body? Yeah. I think that's a big part too, is you know, a lot of time it's, well, I want to lose fat. I'm doing this to lose fat, but there's not that connection of like, well, you're not, you, you know, you're missing a step there. So I, I'm curious how you explain that to them as well. 
Yeah, I have a couple articles saved on my computer that I really like that talk about the changes that happen with malnutrition. And one of them highlights how malnutrition impacts muscle specifically and how it causes weakness. There's one that talks about how weakness from malnutrition can impact people for even like multiple years, like over 20 years of their life. So I'll just really provide articles, honestly, because it's like really a lot more difficult for them to argue with that than it is for them to argue with just random facts that you're telling them. Sometimes that doesn't work. I have had patients say, well, you know, you can find an article to support anything. And I'm I'm like, you know, that's true. However, this is what I'm sharing with you. And I really think you'd have a hard time finding an article that says that like malnutrition and, you know, not being at a healthy body weight is good for your bones and your muscles. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple articles that I really like that talk about like the changes in muscle fiber types that happens. This is actually really interesting. So when people are malnourished or underweight, as they lose weight, their muscle fiber types actually change and they have an increased accumulation of glycogen in their muscles. So you know how most people have like a normal amount or an even amount of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. With malnutrition, the fast twitch muscle fiber types actually turn into slow twitch. So if we were to take like a little biopsy of like somebody with an eating disorder or someone who's malnourished, they're like quadricep muscle, let's say, and we were to look at it in a lab, they would have mostly slow twitch muscle fiber types. So, and I think, I don't actually know why that happens. I personally think that it's probably like a compensatory mechanism that the body does just because number one, it's like slowing down just because the body doesn't have enough nutrition. But I also think it's like, okay, we don't have enough nutritional stores to keep going at this pace. We have to figure out a way to slow down. Mm -hmm. So I really like that one just because it kind of highlights and I can send it, email it to you guys after. Awesome. Yeah. These articles I'm talking to you about. Yeah. I highlight that just because it's like your muscle fiber types are changing and you're slowing yourself down by being malnourished and I think it's a little bit more difficult for them to argue with that. I've had really a lot of success with people who have met me with a lot of resistance. If I sit down with them with articles and I say, you know, this is what the research is supporting and saying. So I think that that can be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you've enlightened me on a couple of things. One, well, I'll go back to the the weight-bearing activity, and this is in the general population. Weight-bearing activity is good for bone density and bone strength. Yes. If you are restricting anorexia, then it's opposite. You yes. Weight-bearing can cause problems. Now, you meant, so I knew that piece, but then the yoga, you know, as in my mind, that's the evidence base. That's the right thing to use, but you're dealing with the most fragile. And yes. so the, the bending that is that is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with this slow, slow, slow twitch and fast twitch muscles changing makes perfect sense. Your body senses yeah. the famine and it has to figure out a way to downregulate. Once the muscles or the once it switches to slow twitch, can you get it back to fast twitch? Yeah, yeah. So that's the cool thing is that with like weight restoration and all of that, it does switch back eventually. It takes a really long time. I've done some research into this and I haven't found a super consistent answer, but based on what I found, it seems like it can take up to a year after like the initiation of treatment, along with the maintenance of full weight restoration for your muscles to fully repair themselves and kind of get back to that normal point. So that's actually interesting too, that you brought that up. It just sparked that when we redo outcome measures, when people leave a cue before they go on to 
into residential treatment or wherever they're going, their strength is still impaired. So I use that as a big educational tool too, of like, you know, you are, we just medically stabilized you. You're not weight restored. You still have quite a long way to go and your strength is still impaired because of that. So mm-hmm. just kind of like hopefully lights a fire under them of like, it's really important that you continue on in this journey mm-hmm. and continue on with the weight restoration, because that's going to be the key thing that you need in order for your muscles to kind of repair themselves. But yeah, it's one of those things like Beth was saying, most things get better. It's mostly just the bone density that seems like it's kind of the sticking point, but all of that stuff can normalize. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we've heard this year time frame more and more. Yeah. So it's a long time. It is. Yeah. It's crazy. I think it can make people feel a little discouraged sometimes. Yeah. I would feel discouraged, mm-hmm. but I think it's hopefully just a good indicator of like, you got to keep trucking along. It's a long, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I always remind people too, of like, you didn't get to this level of malnutrition overnight, right? Like it was years maybe of all of these things. It doesn't happen super quickly. So it's not going to get better super quickly either. It's just something that's going to take time and effort. Mm-hmm. I would love to just like be a fly on the wall in your session. This all sounds so interesting. Honestly, every time we interview someone, I'm like, oh, maybe I should be doing that. Like I should mm-hmm. just become a physical therapist. Right. I know. It's funny. I'll be doing something with patients. Like sometimes I'll incorporate like fun activities into our sessions. Like we have like a soccer ball and sometimes I'll use that to work on balance and stuff. And people around the unit are always like, man, I want to be a physical therapist. Like this looks so fun. (laughs) Oh my gosh. No patient ever says that about their dietitian. (laughs) Yeah. You guys have a difficult job. You guys definitely have a difficult job, but you are one of the most important members of the team in my personal opinion. Like if not the most important. Well, thank you. We wish there were more of you out there for these facilities. That that would be lovely. But it has been so nice to chat with you and learn from you. But we do have a wrap-up question. So, and it's a bit loaded, so take your time. But if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Oh, that's a good question. I think it would be to not be so hard on myself as a clinician. Every patient that you encounter is very different. And I think as healthcare providers, we tend to be that perfectionistic type A, really hard on yourselves personality. I know that I am. So when I first started here, I would sometimes go in for a treatment session and it just would not go to according to plan because the person's had a bad day or they restricted part of their meal plan or whatever it is, like they're just going through it. And I realized that sometimes you can just be there for that person and not really do any physical therapy activities that day, but just sit with them and allow them to talk to you and confide in you. And that is way more valuable than going in and being like, okay, great. You're having a bad day. Well, let's work on some strengthening, you know? So I think just like, it's really important in this setting and in working with this patient population to really meet the person where they're at and kind of let go of any preconceived notions and also let go of the idea that how well the person does is directly correlated to how good of a clinician you are. Because I think that it's really hard in this patient population. There's a lot of relapse. We have people that come back really frequently because they're not doing well and it's hard to not 
take some blame for that. But I think just trying to let it go and saying, you know, I did as much as I could for this person. I showed up for them the best that I could. And just kind of letting go of any preconceived notions is something that I definitely learned over my time here. And I think can be really helpful when working in this setting to help prevent like burnout specifically. Totally. Not being so hard on yourself, meeting people where they are. I just had a client leave yesterday. It was a 50 minute session and pretty much the two of us just cried most of the time. It wasn't, we didn't do any meal planning really. We did talk a little bit about food and how hard it is to, to order nachos if that's what you want when, when everyone else is eating salads and um, it just, but all just the whole pressure of a lifetime of dieting and just feeling oppressed. So that's the, that's the gift we can give people. And Delaney, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, what you said, it can be humbling. Even the comment of, oh, you look good, you know, so you learn those things throughout, but then learning that you don't have to say anything. Sometimes you just have to be there. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.